Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. This is the second part of our look at Alan Klein. And in our first part, we managed to get all the way from his origins as a talented accountant, he said euphemistically, uh, through to getting an in with the Beatles in January 1969 after John Lennon had given an interview where he perhaps over-egged the pudding on how bad the finances were, but certainly offered a gap in the Beatles' armour for Alan Klein to strike. And the deal uh, that's eventually um, set up is that they will meet Alan Klein and John Lennon and Yoko Ono on the 27th of January at the Dorchester Hotel. And for better or for worse, it is we can now uh, currently see the effects of this meeting through Peter Jackson's get back. We see them going to the meeting and we see the aftermath of the meeting. And it's important. Uh, everything kind of changes from this meeting onwards. Yes, because Alan Klein will arrive and save the day. Well, it, it is it is remarkable. Um, you know, we said in the first part that hindsight is twenty twenty vision and something that Get Back allowed us to do is to try and look at January 1969 when the future hadn't been written yet. And it was very interesting to watch it from that point of view. And obviously towards the end of the the movie, when Alan Klein makes an appearance, uh, not in person, but just the the figure, it's it's kind of ominously, he's ominously invisible. Um, You know, we've, we've watched about seven hours of the movie at that point, and you're kind of thinking, well... You know, in in real time, without knowing what's about to happen, you know, why shouldn't that meeting have happened? Yes, I think that it was totally reasonable to happen. I think that's right. Clearly, what the Get Back movie does show is there is a lack of direction. There is a lack of control. They're fine when they get in the studio, when they're recording, when they're playing music. They can lose themselves in that. They they don't need to get hung up about the business stuff but the business stuff is all there and at this point they're they're looking for somebody you know they've been in touch with other people uh they've they, you know been in touch with merchant bankers they've been in touch with uh dr beeching from the railways who famously the railway man the man who closed down the uk's railways in the yes. 1960s yeah mm. so for people people that don't live in the uk or much too young to remember when britain had a railway uh he came in and just closed down all of these branch lines and said, look, uh, you know, these are losing money. And of course, these are the very branch lines and things 
that we could we could do with now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, like the, um, what, what Beeching did, and there was a similar movement um, in, in in Ireland in the sixties to close down railways was very short sighted. Yeah. But they are so they are looking around uh, for someone to come in, and yes, why would they not meet with Klein? Uh, Klein has been circling. He yeah. has a he has a reputation. He is the manager of the business manager of the Stones at this point. Uh, Jagger has spoken to Paul. Paul has previously used Klein's name to to throw this up to Brian Epstein in the context of negotiations. So, so why would they not speak? To, to Klein, the, the I, I suppose his reputation does not sit comfortably with the utopian ideals that they're espousing for Apple. Yeah. But very quickly, uh, by January '69, they've realized they're realizing Apple isn't working. Apple is it, it's not going to work the way that we had envisioned this. So the first meeting is on January the 27th in the Dorchester which is a very posh, fancy hotel, if memory serves, off Hyde Park in London. And um, Klein is ready. He, uh, you know, the thing we said in the first part is that he he constantly um, takes Yoko uh, on a par with John and is, you know, whether it's cynical or not cynical, but it, it's the reality of the matter. He, he takes the two of them as a couple. Yes, and I think that is crucial mm. in in understanding why John is so taken with him. You know, we we've looked a little bit at the the, the genesis of their relationship, the, the the effects that it has had, the sort of divisions that it's provoking, plus they're being vilified in the press, they're being made fun of at this time, and here suddenly they have someone who is at least on the face of it taking her. Seriously, so I mean, to the extent that he arranges for the hotel to provide uh, to serve macrobiotic rice uh, mm. for the meat, because he knows that this is the current, I suppose, fad is what you would say is is uh, they're espousing this diet. So he arranges for this particular type of food. He talks about Yoko's art exhibitions. He'll provide funding for her exhibitions. Uh, he'll arrange to get her films distributed by United Artists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he's he's treating them. As equals. And when he's talking to John, he's kind of playing up his background that, you know, trying to draw Lenin in with parallels. You know, he didn't know his mother and his father, you know, couldn't raise him and he was in the orphanage and, you know, this kind of, you know, unsettled, unclaimed childhood that he'd had. Um, and this cumulative effect seems to work on John and Yoko and... You know, Alan Klein says, you know, I didn't propose anything that night. He just sort of said, how can I help you? You know, it was a very personal type of meeting, trying to get to know each other. He was scared to death about the money situation. How would you feel sitting there damn near broke, having made millions and millions of pounds and to end up with nothing but memories? And as we said in the first part, Alan Klein, he knows how to play people. He does. You know, this idea that they were broke or they would go broke was clearly nonsense. Um, mm. You know, I don't think they, there's any way they could go broke with the, with sort of just the recurring royalties that are coming in and you know continue to come in. But he can sense this fear uh, mm -hmm. on Lenin's part because he can see the money hemorrhaging away. And Lenin becomes, over the course of 1969, he will become particularly outspoken about mm -hmm. 
you know, the leeches in Apple and the people who are exploiting Apple. And he becomes very agitated about this. What he doesn't see is that a lot of money is being hemorrhaged on, you know, hiring hot air balloons to fly over the English countryside <laughs> or uh, shipping acorns to people. And, and Apple is funding all of that at the same time. And there are just no controls. So he does have this fear. Mm. Um, and in Alan Klein's defence, there's nothing wrong with being a savvy businessman who knows how to read people and play people. That's just part of the game. And, you know, the, the other group who are involved in the Beatles at this time is that Paul's almost in-laws, the Eastmans, are also being legal representatives of the Beatles um, at the time. And they, 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 they've kind of become almost an exclusive legal representation for the Beatles when John is talking to Alan Klein on the 27th. That's right. And Klein does say that John said, look, the Eastmans are the exclusive representatives. We can't talk about that. Would you be willing to represent Yoko and me? And Klein said, you know, I was really trying to remain, not appear very anxious. Well, I think we should sleep on it. And he said, well, what's the matter? Don't you want to do it now? Don't you want to sign the deal now? So Klein's retelling of this is really that it's John that's making the running here. Um, He said he went home or went, went, went to bed. Lennon went home. Klein went to bed and then John phones him later, uh, wakes him up and uh, says, you know, let's 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 do this. And Lennon says, you know, it was plain to me that Klein came to London expressly to offer his management services to the Beatles. Lennon is prepared to facilitate that, at least at this stage, for Klein to go in on his behalf and look at his financial situation. So again, there's echoes of this, the, the way that he got the stones, where he came in as Oldham's business manager. So yep. Lennon is saying, right, well, you come in for me. Um, and then it sort of goes from there where Klein then begins to offer his services to, to the other three Beatles as well. Now, it's, it's probably worth saying in the, you know, in the development of what you might want to call corporation rock in the 70s and 80s, it's not unusual for large bands where different individuals within the band might have a different manager or certainly a business manager um you know, feeding into the group structure. Um, so that's not, now you can argue whether or not it's the healthiest way of doing things, you know, but, uh, you know, you have some groups like Fleetwood Mac where everybody has their own manager these days, um, but there's still a brand that goes out and plays and hits the road. You know, it's not unusual. I think the the, the issue is that we like to think of the Beatles as being these gang. four guys in a gang and... Uh, it's it's sort of all for one and one for all. And that is certainly the way that Paul approaches this. You know, we mm-hmm. don't need w- w- this kind of interference. Once we get into this, it's, you know, it's just the four of us and we always agree everything and we always move forward together. Plus, they very publicly, you know, planted their flag on this utopian Apple idea of it's not about the money and it's not about the record companies and we want to make a break from this the the men in suits and here they are on the point of bringing you know the the biggest bastard in a suit in to work for them and it's it, it doesn't sit comfortably with that and i think klein's reputation with beatles fans is that's the starting point well he's not simpatico with with what they are he's not 
of the brand. He doesn't sit with Apple. This is com- something completely different. But you can't get away from the fact that by January 1969, all of the Beatles, all four of them, were conscious that they needed to do something. Yeah. Um, that, that, that is true. And, and what we will see as this evolves a little bit is that there are certain things that Klein does that aren't, you know, this isn't exactly Paul against Klein 100% of the time. So we just need to keep that in, in mind. But what is striking is just how fast it happens. As you say, you know, John is kind of given the offer to sleep on it. He doesn't even sleep on it. He he basically makes a, a, a decision to say that, you know, Alan Klein now handles all my stuff. And he tells pretty soon afterwards, Sir Joseph Lockwood, chairman of EMI, that, well, me, John Lennon, I'm signed up to the good ship Alan Klein. And, uh, and that's that. And as I said, you know, you can see the aftermath the following day if you rewind back and watch um, Get Back. And when you get to the January 28th session of Get Back, there's a conversation between John Lennon and George Harrison where he's recounting this very meeting. And, you know, again, with hindsight, you're watching this going, John, you you know, you seem, how could you have been so naive? But, you know, what John says to George is, you know, we were up till 2am. He knows everything about everything. He knows what we're all like. He knows me as well as you do. So he's saying to George Harrison, this guy I met yesterday knows me better than you or as well as you do. He's an incredible guy, says says Lennon. And you're watching it going, John, you know, he's hook, line and sinker. He's just gone for it. He's sold. This is absolutely the case. Um, And again, looking at Lennon's personality, Epstein, Klein, the Maharishi, Arthur Janoff, you you know, it's back to this cod psychology thing. He's looking for a father figure. He's found someone Mm. that someone that he he has a degree of empathy with, that it's a reciprocal thing. it's it's a neat trick that Klein does, which is you you know you can imagine he has a crib sheet of the ten talking points to get across mm. to Lennon, learn some lyrics from Lennon's songs, talk about macrobiotic rice, talk about how <laughs> great Yoko's films are, talk about the orphanage being raised by his aunt, bang bang yeah. bang, all of those points. Klein is a hustler, he's an operator, and Lennon just is on board, but. Uh, you know, it's the fact then that Lennon sells it to George and Ringo. Yep. Well, you know, having hovered for so long, it what is amazing is that after um, Klein gets this meeting on January the 27th, he then gets to meet all the Beatles together on January the 28th, like 24 hours later. Biggest band in the world. That's how quickly these kind of things happen. And it might be worth mentioning briefly the Eastmans at this point, because they are also in the picture. So January 1969, um, Paul is with Linda Eastman, but they are not married. They don't marry until March 1969. But um, Linda's dad is John Eastman, who is a successful attorney. At this stage, he's about 59 years of age. And he earned his showbiz credentials with Tommy Dorsey. He also represented modern artists like Rothko and de Kooning, and he'd go on to work with Billy Joel and Dave Bowie and all the rest. So he's he's a showbiz, he's a New York lawyer involved in show business and the worlds of fame. And that's Lee Eastman. And Linda's brother, John, is 
being groomed to be a partner in the Eastman and Eastman firm. Um, and he's obviously younger and a little bit more, um, you know, newer to the business than his dad. But they are presented as a package. And this seems to suit Paul because, you know, he is suitably impressed by the Eastmans and what they are saying. And I think Paul feels that they are not out to hustle him into a, a contract. He talks specifically that he just pays them on a pro rata basis for any work that they do. And they are bending Paul's ear to say, you know, we have been in the New York show business circle for a while and Alan Klein is, you know, he's got issues. <laughs> yes, there are two aspects, I think, of of the Eastman connection. The first is that their social standing and it's again tempting to see parallels with the Asher family so mm-hmm. in yep. the same way that when Paul when Paul arrives up from Liverpool he very consciously it's embar- he embarks on a almost a program of uh, self-improvement you know he he's kind of the, the Asher family is is a very impressive setup to him and they're culturally very clued into the London scene it's it's sort of the theatricality and all the rest of it and and it's a social step up from from where he is in Liverpool that's that's kind of undeniable and again what you've got with Linda's family background although Linda herself doesn't seem to sort of buy into that and is a bit more of a free spirit but it's this big New York, you know, there's money, there's big houses, there's connections, and it's impressive. And the second side is, yes, the Eastmans are saying, well, you just pay us for a job of work. You know, it's not yeah. that you, you're not going to sign up for 20 years at 20% or 30% and we're not going to take percentage of your earnings. You just pay us for the job you want us to do and we'll set out a retainer and we'll, we'll do the job. And they have already sort of come in and been appointed as, I suppose, general counsel. So for legal mm-hmm. matters, uh, they're already on, they're on staff, they're on standby, they're on a retainer of some description. Because John mentions this in the Dorchester meeting with Klein, he sort of says, well, look, the Eastmans are in and, uh, you know, so we can't really talk about that. But will you, will you come on board as my business manager? The other thing is the Eastmans are, as you say, saying, stay away from Klein. So they're they're bending Paul's ear and saying he is not a nice character. He is dislikable. But not only that, he's under investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission over an alleged stock rigging scheme. And they're just warning, warning him off and saying this is he's he's not to be trusted, basically. And Paul, that's. He is getting that advice directly from the Eastmans. But then he's relaying that. So it becomes secondhand through to the other Beatles. So they're kind of saying, well, that's Paul's father-in-law is saying, you know. uh, So this is where the suspicions start. And I don't think we can underestimate the antipathy between Klein and Eastman, Mm -hmm. between Eastman and Klein. They are two totally separate groups of people. And and Klein does confirm, you know, in the 1971 court case, you know, that, um, you know, when he met Lennon in January 69, the Beatles had issued a general retainer to John Eastman to negotiate contracts throughout the world, which was terminatable or terminable at any time. Um, So, you know, Klein knows that Eastman is there and that Eastman 
is involved. And again, trying to be totally naive and look at it from the end of January 1969, you know, it's easy for John, George and Ringo to say, well, Paul, of course you have an agenda with your guy. You're, you know, you're marrying into that family. Now, just as a side point, obviously, Lee Eastman and, and John Eastman eventually go up to, you know, uh, set up MPL and have hugely successful careers and their work with MPL has turned that into a powerhouse. But heaven forbid that I should... Um, say at this early stage that uh, Paul was so wise. I'm, I'm going to park that thought because, <laughs> again, we are trying not to deal in the hindsight uh, vision, uh, the, the hindsight uh, way of doing things. But, um, yeah, Paul kind of gets this pushback that Lee Eastman is a bit too biased. Um, and um, amazingly, 24 hours after John's original meeting with Alan Klein, um, and, and we see this again in Get Back, at the end of the January the 28th session, they go, Alan Klein's here. Hooray. And they just down tools. The other thing I would say about the January 28th day on Get Back is they are drinking so much wine, so much wine, that you're kind of wondering, they are about to, they are, they, they've all got a belly full of wine and they're going upstairs to meet uh, the, the abstemious and clear-headed Alan Klein, who's about to um, chart their course for them. And it's a meeting that, uh, well, depends who you're looking at. Does it go well? Well, it's it's not a meeting. It's <laughs> not it's 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 not a meeting that that. Uh, no, I don't think we can say it goes well. <laughs> well, the, the 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 four of them go up, and um, basically, four people go into that meeting, and maybe not uh, everybody stays. So. Klein kind of states his case to the four of them, and then Paul leaves, or what happens? Yeah, the, so the, the, there's John Eastman is there, and uh, a riot ensues, and Paul leaves. And if I give anybody a free piece of legal advice, is never leave the meeting before the <laughs> negotiation is over. And I, I, I think it's a huge mistake uh, and possibly you can say this is this is where it all starts to unravel is the fact that Paul exits. So yeah. he sort of he goes know, to take a bath, Stephen. I think that's what he's doing. Yeah, probably. He'll be very clean. He'd be very clean. <laughs> um, he leaves the field, and you know, you yeah. know what? Yeah, the, the, you know, the battle is not over, and he leaves the field. So of course, then that's everything is going to go a different way. And yeah. uh, this is never a good, never a good tactic. And it does go a different way. So George and Ringo go, yeah, fine. Uh, can you look at our stuff too? Mm -hmm. Now, the big thing that is kind of looming is the issue of NEMS. And there has been a rough plan at this time in January 69 that the Beatles themselves would buy out NEMS. And... Here's where we need legal expertise to try and parse this out and understand it. But as I understand it, the Beatles were going to be given a £1 million advance by EMI. And the Beatles were going to take that million pounds and use it to buy NEMS. NEMS, whose main role at this point in time is filtering the Beatles' money from record sales and taking 25% for themselves for the privilege and passing on 75% of the gross record revenues earned onto the Beatles. And the Beatles are going to buy this basically cash clearing house for 
a million pounds and they're going to get that million pounds from EMI and EMI are going to claim it as an advance. So once the Beatles have made a million pounds, they've paid back the loan to EMI. That is the plan. Am I reading? Is that right? That is that is the plan. And the only flaw in the plan is when you said and when the Beatles have earned a million pounds, because Mm -hmm. we will come on to that point. Uh, How much money would they need to earn to pay back? the million pound advance from EMI because they're going to look for interest on that. They're not just going to give them, uh, they're not just going to give them the money and then there's tax involved. So this is this is where the plan starts to unravel. But, but yes, that's essentially it. And this is a plan that John Eastman, so Linda's brother has come up with, with this, this idea. And yeah. uh, he says, I saw Clive Epstein immediately. I told him, look, you can't get money out of the company to pay estate taxes. It's the death duties uh, following Brian's death. Why don't we buy NEMS and you'll get the money as a capital gain? Yep. Forget the 20, 25%, which is NEMS entitlement of the royalties. What's the company worth? 800000 900000 Forget it. We won't quibble. We'll give you a million pounds. So just a quick recap. Clive is sitting as the managing director. Queenie Epstein that Brian's mother has uh, 70%, uh, Clive has 20%, the Beatles have 10%. In late 67, Clive Epstein had already received and refused an offer to sell to Triumph Investment Trust, which is headed up by a merchant banker called Leonard Reichenberg. Mm -hmm. A year later, he tries again. And by this stage, because of the, the... tax situation arising from Brian's death, Clive is more uh, amenable. Reichenberg says, I offered to buy the 70% shares for £620,000. I agreed to pay Clive £420,000, provided the royalties were coming to names were not less than £350,000 for two years. If there were no royalties, he would get £150,000. So this is just an investment trust that is buying that they've no interest in the the music they've no interest it's it's an income producing entity and they're buying Mm -hmm. future income they queenie epstein clive decide yeah this is an offer we want to take but they feel an obligation to uh tell the beatles about this and this is then in january 69 john steps in and says well we'll just buy it for a million we'll get money from emi you you won't even have to write a check we'll just do this against uh, a royalty advance then klein uh klein arrives on the scene and says hold everything yeah and 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 this all goes back to the 1967 EMI deal. So the 1967 deal runs until 1976. So this deal with NEMS is that all the record sales from 67 to 76, all the money goes to NEMS, NEMS takes 25% and gives it to the Beatles. So the the, the role of the dice, if you're uh, purchasing this, is what is 25% of Beatles record sales going to generate between now and 1976? Um, you know, what is that figure of money? because you don't want to, you know, pay too much uh, and not generate that amount of cash. Again, just as a sidestep, I'm thinking of Bowie Bonds. David Bowie did a very similar thing with Bowie Bonds in the late 90s, where he sold off his um, record sales revenues for the next nine or ten years in a form of bonds, and he made about $30 million for himself. And then two years later, MP3s collapsed the music business. So, So the bonds were junk by the end of the term, and Bowie made off with the money. So it's a speculative business. Um, so you're trying to say, well, what is the value? What should I spend in order to get that revenue stream? What are the parallel things that it'll cost me in terms of how, how many records I'll have to sell? 
But then in terms of selling it, the 90% owned by the Epstein mother and son, they're trying to say, well, actually, you know, we have a need to sell because of a tax liability inheritance issue. So they have a need to sell. The other people have a want to buy. And the question is, where does that value lie? And as you say, John uh, Eastman has made this um, deal uh, in, in in theory to buy for a million advanced from EMI. And that's kind of the first thing that Klein goes after. And it's in this meeting on the 28th of February, he's like, tall for them, hold on, hold on, hold on, don't do this. And what's his rationale? Yeah, his his rationale is essentially he's saying, firstly, how much money would you have to earn to have a million pounds to pay this Mm. back? And the answer is not that you would have to earn a million pounds, but you'd have to earn in the region of two million pounds plus because you mm-hmm. pay tax. So yeah. the money that will end up in your account to pay EMI is, is is going to be whittled away by the tax. So you're going to have to work and work and work and work. And I think it's still in Klein's mind that he will be able to sort of relieve EMI of a million pounds uh, yeah. because he'll be able to say, well, you haven't done this and you haven't done that. And they're back royal. did the same thing that he did with Bobby Darren, the same thing that he did with... Um, Sam Cook, that he is convinced that there will be unpaid royalties and there will be something in there that he can use to produce the cash. But it's interesting that the deal between Apple and NEMS is out there. It's being reported on. So on Mm -hmm. the 2nd of February, uh, Cashbox magazine is saying Apple Corps, the Beatles enterprises, to take over NEMS enterprises, the company built up by the foursome's late manager, Brian Epstein. And they say, just to give you an idea of the figures, it is estimated that Apple receives £750,000 annually. So that's £750,000 in 1969 money in record Mm -hmm. royalties, while a further £250,000 goes to names. These amounts will obviously swell when proceeds from the massive sales of the foursome's current double album start to flow. By acquiring names, Apple will strengthen its own financial health and obtain a slice of Northern Songs because names owns shares in Northern Songs. So it's connected there as well. Yeah, NEMS owns um, 7.2% of Northern Songs. So that's, if, if, if you're paying attention. <laughs> the other business entity we need to keep an eye on is Northern Songs, which is the publishing company that has numerous songs, but particularly the very valuable Lennon and McCartney songbook. Uh, NEMS owns 7.2% of Northern Songs. Uh, John and Paul, at the start of 1969, own 15% each of Northern Songs. So if you add all that up, that's 37.2% of Northern Songs. And the the second thing that's going to come on the horizon as 69 progresses is the ownership of Northern Songs. So park that notion for a second. Once Alan Klein comes in, this NEMS deal gets, um, you know, kind of halted. And that is, uh, that that then doesn't really work out, you know. The, 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 the meeting on the 28th of January, you know, Klein subsequently recounts it in affidavits, is that they meet um, at about nine o'clock and they have a general discussion about the proposed purchase of NEMS. And, you know, he says, I can't recommend Mr. Lennon to proceed with the purchase um, because he's, you know, managed to get John in as a, you know, he represents John now. And uh, he says, you know, that we, 
should um, discuss this further with the Eastmans present. And uh, in the interim, he's going to do that thing he does, Klein. He's going to go off between the 20th of January and the start of February to look through some accounts. And, um, you know, this guy who's amazing at looking at a bunch of books but seemingly can't manage a tax return, uh, off he goes to off do he goes. that. Essentially, he says, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to audit EMI's books and, and the three things. I sound like John Cleese. What have Alan Klein ever done for us? Um <laughs> He's going to audit EMI's books, he's going to renegotiate the record contract, and he's going to get Apple back on its feet by removing dead weight. So, true to his word, the first thing that he does is he goes off and spends the remainder of that week at the offices of the Beatles accountants, Bryce Hammer and co., with a chap called Harry Pinsker, getting all the information that he needs, and he says, well, look, I've got this information, I don't have all the information I need, but we need to put this on hold. So the whole deal stops. He is working without a contract at this stage. So, Mm. you know, the other Beatles are, three of them are are prepared to sign. He says, no, no, we don't, we don't need to sign, you know, just I'll go and do this. And then if you're happy. So he's, he's playing a very clever game. Then there is a... He's playing a different game than he's played with other artists where he does get it in writing and... Yeah, he's trying to prove his worth. This is when we said in the first part, he does things a little bit differently with the Beatles. You know, he's essentially doing something that he doesn't normally do, which is work for free without a contract. Yes, essentially. Uh, essentially, this is, this, this is the way he's proceeding. He's also then saying, well, we need to have the Eastmans on board. So he obviously knows that Paul is not happy with this. He knows the Eastmans don't like him particularly. There is... Another meeting on the 1st of February, and again, a lot of what we quote from here are the affidavits that Klein uh, files in court subsequently in the court actions. And, you know, they're all quite, they're all written in legalese, they're all quite formal, and they're all written at a time when he's trying to make a point and set out evidence. Mm. So we can't take these as being, uh, you know, it's not that a third party is in the room making an objective assessment. But what, what he says is at this second meeting on the 1st of February, Paul McCartney introduced the subject of Northern Songs and said that he wanted the Beatles to own it. Klein wants to defer that mm-hmm. un- until they sort out the issue with names. And then he said, at this stage, John Eastman launched a personal attack uh, on my integrity, producing a copy of the Cameo Parkway proxy statement. This is a reference back to the stock rigging allegation uh, that was going on in, in New York. Clippings from newspapers. He alleged I had a bad reputation. I invited him to make specific charges or criticisms, but he did not do so. Um, I think my answer satisfied the Beatles, and uh, I suggested that John Eastman should be that of legal advisor. And again, this is clever. He's not saying ditch the Eastmans. He's saying by all means, you know this this young well, he's this young he's chap, trying. you know, uh, should should be there as your legal advisor. And um, Eastman rejects that on the grounds that he's does more than uh, an English lawyer normally does. The meeting broke up and another meeting was arranged for the following Monday on the 3rd of February again at at Savile Row. So this is an extremely cantankerous meeting and Eastman is making personal personal attacks on Klein. There's a couple of things to pull out from that. One is, you know, while, while he goes off after the 28th to delve through the books, the Beatles are going up onto the roof. They're fannying about on the yeah. roof. Doing wasting, their, wasting their time when they could be looking at accounts. <laughs> Well, exactly. But, you know, if Brian had been alive, he would have been sat 
or stood arms folded at the side of that roof. He wouldn't have been knee deep in, in accounting books. And, you know, you, you, you rewind back to the Get Back film, you know, uh, on the 29th, you know, after the big meeting with the four of them where Paul leaves early, you know, John says to Ringo, oh, I was with Alan Klein till 12 or half 12. And you have this, you know, very interesting, you know, Glyn Johns is basically trying to warn them that this is a strange man, a clever man, but he's 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 a bit off. And, and Glyn Johns says an amazing thing, which is he probably talks to you differently than how he talks to the likes of us. Um, meaning, you know, he's, he, you know, you're a Beatle and he's talking to you in a Beatle way. He's not giving you, you know, the elbow. And Ringo makes his, his famous comment that he's a con man on our side. And then, you know, they're up on the roof the next day while Klein is going through the books and, you know, Ringo's supposed to be off doing the Magic Christian, but here we are, it's the first week of February and John Eastman has flown over from New York. And the other thing to remember is that John Eastman is the the son and there's a little bit of kind of an inference that, well, I'm big bad Alan Klein and you've sent over the boy, not Lee Eastman himself hasn't turned up. And that's also used as a bit of a slight or to kind of undermine the situation. Yes, and I have to say, dispassionately trying to be objective, I, I I do have a respect for what Klein is able to do in this in these meetings because he mm. does seem to just be able to play any hand that he's he's dealt. So uh, you know he turns the personal attacks that he receives from John Eastman against Eastman. He offers him apparently magnanimously says, "Oh yeah, but that's fine. You can continue to be the." the legal advisor, and then Eastman realises, well, that would put him in a subsidiary role, and he's kind of walked into that. And you do just get a sense that Klein is running rings around everybody in that room, uh, you know, not just yeah. not just Eastman, but, but the Beatles and McCartney. And part of this is because what Klein is trying to do does actually dovetail with what Paul wants. You know, Paul wants names. Paul wants... Northern songs and Klein is saying, "Well, I'm not against that. Let me see if there's a better way I can finance well, this." And 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 more pointedly, Paul doesn't want them for himself. He wants them for the Beatles. You know, he wants, you know, he's he wants John on board and he wants Apple on board and he wants this kind of again. You know, we see it with MPL how he set that up as a solo artist. He basically wants a version of MPL for the Beatles, where it's all under the Apple umbrella. They own Northern Songs, finally. They own NEMS. They get their recordings back on track. Um, that's what they want. And and there's a there's a later interview in the 70s with Paul and Linda where, you know, Paul, you know, is, is talking, you know, oh, I should probably rant and rave about the other three, but, you know, um, I just, you know, they think I'm trying to pull a, a fast one. And, you know, he talks about how Klein said things like, um, you know, if you guys want NEMS or Northern Songs, I'll buy it for you and I'll give it to you. That's always a red flag if uh, some kind of business manager says that. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll, buy, I'll just hold it here for you and, and, and pass it on. I'm sure he said that to the Stones. I'll just buy these recording masters off Andrew Oldham and, uh, and pass them on to you eventually. Um, but the, the, the actual savvy, sane thing that Paul says is, you know, um, you know the, he says to George, you know, I can't do it. Uh, he, t- he talks about how, you know... Um, this is post um, the concert for Bangladesh, that Paul is very wary about doing anything uh, to kind of support Klein in the aftermath of all of this. He, Paul kind of knows that there's a value and a worth in what he attaches himself to and what he doesn't attach himself to. So, you know, when he's fighting Klein later on in court, he doesn't really want to give Klein any 
reasonable credit. He's kind of forced into a position where he can't really acknowledge any of the stuff that Klein has done. Exactly, exactly. And he's talking to, to this This interview is in, in uh, 1971. And uh, uh, one interesting exchange in that is he said, uh, Paul says, so Klein at that meeting says, listen, I think the guys shouldn't buy this and I think it's so much and the guys shouldn't spend a million. And Linda interrupts and says, boys. He said, boys. Mm. And Paul went, yeah, the boys. So, and you think even that, he's picked that up from watching Epstein interviews where he where he talked about the boys. So he's he's even clever in, in, in the specific use of language, how he's referring to them in the same yeah. way that Epstein referred to them. So he he's he's that's the nice side of Klein. And Paul does say, you know, Alan's a nice fella, a good talker. The others really dig him. They really like him. So you can't say anything bad there. You can't you can't tell them not to. I think I've made a mistake, actually, in trying to advise them. Every time I ring up and say, look, he's had a million and a half and you haven't got it, I think it just pisses them off. I think it also, I think they secretly think I might be right, too. So this is in, this is in 1971, um, mm. where Paul, with a little bit of hindsight, is sort of saying, well, you know, like every time I try to warn them off, it just reinforces uh, the sense that... Uh, it's a personal thing or that I'm trying to pull a fast one. And he sort of, by 1971, he's kind of realizing that tactically he's not played the right game against, against Klein. You know, Klein is not yeah. somebody you can, you can take on head to head, I think. Um, and so what happens is another meeting is planned after the 1st of February for the 3rd of February. And this time Lee Eastman flies over um, as the more senior partner of Eastman and Eastman uh, to meet with the Beatles plus Klein. And we will discuss that after this break. End of part one. Intermission. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So it's February 1969. They are having meetings. And the 3rd of February 1969, we have... Let's count it out. It's an amazing group of people. If this was a lineup at a gig, you'd be delighted. You have the Eastmans, John and Lee Eastman, uh, son and father. You have the Beatles, John, Paul, Ringo and George, uh, uh, George and Ringo. And you have Alan Klein and you have uh, Mick Jagger. What? <laughs> Why? Yes, Why does Mick, Mick Jagger appear? Mick on backing vocals. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so this this is an absolutely fascinating meeting. And it does, to me, indicate just how established Klein had become 
in just a matter of a few days. So Eastman Senior flies to London because the meeting on the 1st of February has gone so disastrously and, and, and was so acrimonious. Now, I have to say, not before time does Lee Eastman arrive in yeah, London. Yeah, he should have been there sooner. Lee, Lee Eastman should have been there mm. sooner. But anyway, um, Paul has invited Mick to come along to, to a meeting with the Beatles is how it is presented because Paul wants Jagger to to basically share uh, his experience. And um, Jagger arrives at Apple and finds that Klein is in the boardroom. Mm. So Jagger doesn't know that Klein is going to be there. So suddenly faced with Klein, he can't bring himself to say, look him in the eye and say, this is this guy's a crook yeah. or this guy, you need to watch him. And he just kind of says, hey, he's all right, if you like that sort of thing. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of the famous Jagger phrase. Yeah, Klein is all right, if you like this sort of thing. And it's a, it's a very, I mean, yeah, I, I feel sorry for Jagger in that situation because, again, you know, thinking through the get back prism of who's there looking out for these guys that it actually takes the lead singer of the Rolling Stones is trying to go over to the four Beatles to say look out for Alan Klein Alan Klein is there and he isn't really able to get his message across and if anything the presence of Lee Eastman uh, and John Eastman together things just get worse and in reality there's nothing clever about what Klein is doing it's just classic divide and conquer techniques and he's 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 trying to divide and conquer the Beatles he's trying to divide and conquer the Eastmans and, and Paul um, but he's also simultaneously realising that, you know, he's he, the way to do that is not just to dismiss the Eastmans um, fully, but irrespective of the fact that the Eastmans have tried to flag up things like, you know, Klein being invest- under investigation by the Securities Commission and being involved in about 40 lawsuits uh, in the USA, you know, Klein is kind of hitting back and it gets a bit ugly. You know, they, they point out things like the Eastmans, their original name when they moved to the US was Epstein. And, you know, it's kind of almost a strangely almost like a anti-semitic type kind of attack on them and it's it's all just not good it is not good it is not good uh so yeah leesman turns up clutching a sheaf of papers and newspaper clippings that all the negative things and all the bad reports about klein and this is the point at which for me it it sort of tips into being just a personal fight between Klein and the Eastmans. Mm. And it does seem to me that that antipathy between the two parties is th- the main driver f- for quite a number of weeks and months in, in the breakdown of the relationship. So as you say, Lee Eastman, the family, they're, they're Jewish immigrants from Russia, and his original name was Leopold Epstein. Mm. But he changes his name. And this is kind of, uh, you know, Klein uses this to appeal to Lenin's sense of, uh, you, you know, uh, being against snobbery and being, you have to be very honest and you have to be very upfront. And this guy is, is sort of hiding uh, his his Jewish background. Uh, and eventually he, he starts interrupting everything mm-hmm. uh, that Eastman is saying. And he, he goads Eastman into just losing his temper there is a massive you know outburst and he discredits himself effectively he he just lets himself down well he does and i mean it's first of all alan klein you have to think that he obviously assumes that everybody else is is in it for the reasons that he's in it and 
you know, taking the Eastmans at face value, they were on retainer. Um, they weren't necessarily trying to get the Beatles to sign anything that made them manager. But Klein said in subsequent affidavits, you know, out of the clear blue, John Eastman was already there and Lee Eastman arrived after a bit. You can be sure they wanted to take over as managers. I baited Lee Eastman a bit. He blew his cool and started screaming and cursing at me. That settled it. They knew what he was like then all except Paul. And, you know, any witness in the courts, you'll tell them, don't lose your cool. You know, if you're being cross-examined, that's kind of the first failure. That's it. And Lennon talks about it. uh, When he talks about it, he said that Eastman was the bully in the Mm. room. Uh, And he said, we hadn't been in there more than a few minutes when Lee Eastman was having something like an epileptic fit and screaming at Alan that he was the lowest scum on earth and calling him, uh, you know, all sorts of names. And then, uh, you know, Paul is, is joining in with this. So the whole thing deteriorates. And yeah. it seems to be clear at this point that this is this is just a fundamental issue. And Paul, in his court affidavit, he says this is the first time in the history of the Beatles that a possible irreconcilable difference had bet- appeared between us. And yeah. again, he, he's talking about a possible irreconcilable difference. But again, this affidavit is written in 1971. He needs to convince the court that even coming out of that meeting... It wasn't wholly irrecoverable. Well, yes, and and that's the thing because nothing still is in paper. But by, by the end of February the third, nineteen sixty nine, Klein is informally appointed as the Beatles' business manager and is more or less told to go away and drum up the papers. And whether Paul, in his brain, was thinking, "Well, nothing is signed yet. Let's just see what happens with these papers. Let's just wait." And and as we'll, we'll find out in a second, those papers don't arrive until three months later at the start of May. So there's this period between February and May where Klein is the business manager of the Beatles, but it is not signed, sealed and delivered. And at that point, there is definitely, you know, it's John, George, Ringo and Klein on one side. And Paul is not totally uh, signed up for this in any way. But out of a sort of a, a nod to Paul, the Eastmans do remain on retainer as a as a compromise as Apple general counsel and you would imagine Paul was kind of waiting to see how this would shake out before anything gets signed up in paper I think there's an element of that because you know Apple Derek Taylor does put out a statement saying the Beatles have asked Mr. Alan Klein of New York to look into all their affairs and he has agreed to do so it was announced from the headquarters at Apple Savile Row London today so that that comes out of that meeting a very acrimonious meeting but there is that appointment. No contracts are signed nope. yet. And the first thing he does, same day, goes and speaks to Clive uh, Epstein to talk about now. Well, that's the thing. You know, Alan Klein has to, essentially three months to prove himself. He has to, if he's going to get those names on the dotted line, he has to prove his worth uh, and all his skills. And so the first thing he's going to try and prove is the, the NEMS deal. And he goes to Clive Epstein, and he sort of says, can I have two or three weeks to just go through the books and revise everything and and look at what's going on? And and Clive agrees to do this. Mm. That's a that's a success. The, the sale to Triumph is put on hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, Epstein says, right, three weeks. Uh, happy to sit for three weeks. Uh, Klein says, the following day, uh, I left for New York to begin an investigation into the three main sources of the Beatles' income in order to verify their financial position. United Artists Corporation, the company which handled the films, General Artists Corporation, which held the tour, EMI, and Capital. So again, 
you can see he's looking back at the touring income. Is there money to be uh, re recovered there? And the Beatles have signed authorities for him to go to each of these companies, each of these income sources. And these are obviously the income sources that are going into NEMS that we've mentioned before. These are kind of yes, exactly. where they are from. So he's, so. so he's going back to the source, you know. So, so the Beatles haven't toured for three years, but he's going to go back and he's going to look at those papers um, and, and, and sort of see. And again, one of the fascinating things is there is a running commentary in all of this in the press. So Cashbox magazine mm. on the 8th of February are still reporting this and they're saying, oh, there's no, still no indication about who might join the Apple board to reorganize it. But one name that's being speculated on is Nat Weiss. If you mm -hmm. remember that, it's Brian's uh, lawyer. And uh, he, he hosted John and Paul when they were in New York uh, setting, setting up uh, uh, Apple. So all of this is sort of, there's a, as you say, there's a hiatus and everything is proceeding. And then it's Valentine's Day. And there's a bit of a Valentine's Day if not a massacre, it's certainly the Valentine's Day misstep. So, you know, the, yeah. the client has been given roughly till the last week in February to sort out the the, the the accounts and to make sure everything is is the way he likes it. And then there's this really strange letter on the 14th of February from John Eastman to Clive Epstein. And, um, you know, after the fact, John Eastman says Klein made him write it, Klein denies saying him write it, but he writes this letter to John Eastman, uh, John Eastman writes this letter to Clive Epstein saying, as you know, Mr. Alan Klein is doing an audit of the Beatles affair vis-a-vis -vis NEMS and Nemperor Holdings Limited. When this has been completed, I suggest we meet to discuss the results of Mr. Klein's audit, as well as the propriety of the negotiations surrounding the nine-year agreement between EMI, the Beatles and NEMS. Now, you might read that initially and gloss over the thing, the little bomb that's in that paragraph. But Clive Epstein had a huge problem with this letter. Yes. So the suggestion there in that final phrase uh, that we will look at the propriety of the negotiations surrounding the nine-year agreement between EMI, the Beatles, and NEMS, there is a definite suggestion that something is not right there. You know, there's there's a bad smell about this uh, negotiation. You know, was there some kind of incentive that wasn't disclosed that mm -hmm. NEMS has received? But there is a very explicit suggestion that there's something inappropriate has gone on with the negotiation. Now, in the context of, of the NEMS deal, if that is right and and the deal that has been done is is flawed or tarnished or, or capable of being uh, overturned. NEMS loses its income, mm -hmm. loses its worth. They don't know, need to take it over. Yeah. They, they, don't, they don't need to take it over. So all of these things. Now, it seems to me, looking at that, it must have been a deliberate attempt to unsettle Clive Epstein. It, that, that is not, you, you know, this is a legal letter. Yeah. Uh, no matter how young, no matter how inexperienced the lawyer might be, that is something... That, that is being written very purposefully. Mm. Well, it's that one it's, word, proprietary, that's that's kind of unusual because, you know, even if he'd said, you know, we can discuss the, the details of the, of, of the nine-year agreement or the fine print of the nine-year agreement, you know, yeah. I think that'd be reasonable to say, look, we'll meet it all up and then we'll see the audit versus what you've agreed, what we've agreed and all the rest. But it's this interesting thing about the Epsteins is that they are very much all about decency and above boardedness and all the rest. And that word, propriety, a propriety, 
to Clive Epstein is like red rag to a bull. Yes, yes. He takes this very badly, uh, very badly. He, he particularly, he's saying, well, this is an insult to my late brother. And he mm. responds immediately saying, before any meeting takes place, please be good enough to let me know precisely what you mean by the phrase, the propriety of the negotiation. So he's yeah. absolutely honed in on this. Now, John Eastman says Klein told him to write that letter. If that were the case, I would be expecting a lawyer to write back and say, well, this is against my advice because I think this will not, I think this will unsettle the other side. I don't think, you, you know, lawyers are very used to keeping themselves right. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I don't really understand what the purpose was other than perhaps again to flag up Klein is, is, is going to behave in a very aggressive uh, way. But there's no need to flag that up. Everybody knows that. Yeah. And it, uh, according to uh, you know other insiders, Neil Aspinall and that wise, it, it kind of gets worse. So Neil Aspinall says, John Eastman kept wanting to attach these tax warranties to the deal. And I kept saying to him, shut up, will you? Because I could see the whole deal was getting screwed up by this and that Clyde didn't like the idea. And then he says, if you ask me, Lee Eastman was stupid to send his son over. You tell me, would you send your son to do business with John Lennon? Mm. So that, again, I think that's a misstep. And then Nat Weiss says, John Eastman seemed to think uh, that they, the Beatles, were going to be angry with Klein. Uh, Lee flew to London thinking Klein would be ready to give up. It was like expecting Hitler to be scared off by the Liechtenstein army. In the end, he was hoping Klein would be prepared to compromise, but Klein wasn't prepared to share control if he could get it at all. Well, that's the um, key phrase. Like, where, where has Shine, where has Klein ever shared control um, with yep. anybody? You know, that, that he, he's, he's, it's a zero-sum game for Alan Klein. Absolutely, absolutely. But... The the direct response is uh, to that letter from John Eastman is Clive Epstein reopens the negotiations with uh, the Triumph Investment Trust. So having agreed to a three-month hiatus, uh, only a few days later, on the 14th uh, of February, we are, that's all off. And the, the, the rival bids are, are discussing it again, you know. And by the 17th of February, Triumph acquire... Just three days later, 70% of the shares of NEMS and Emperor Holdings for £750,000. So they essentially buy the 70% owned by Brian's mum, Queenie, that she had inherited from Brian, which means, you know, that kind of covers the estate taxes and the inheritance issues. And Clive keeps his 20% and the Beatles keep their 10%. And and um, Leonard Reichenberg, who's the, the, the man who's behind Triumph, um, you know, talks about, uh, you know, when we did this deal, there's a, a lot of eyebrows were raised in the city, merchant bankers buying into show business. But as we said earlier on with Prince Rupert, this is the way it's going, where it's it's this is where money is and these people manage money. Yes, this is this is an income generating entity. And it's, mm. it's no more than that. It doesn't matter whether they're writing songs, selling records, making widgets. It's just producing money. Neil Aspinall is informed of this on February the 21st. Alan Klein's affidavit says, you know, he got a phone call from Neil Aspinall on the 21st of February, 69, saying that Triumph um, had purchased uh, a controlling interest in NEMS. And in a wonderful bit of affidavit speak, uh, Alan Klein says, I was shocked and dismayed by this turn of events. And the official announcement is made on the 24th of February. And so Klein um, (laughs) decides to go full Klein and meets Leonard Reichenberg on the 25th of February from 
uh, Triumph, who've taken over the 70% to say, you know, you need us some money and does a virtual holding him by the ankles outside the window <laughs> to say, give yes. me my Beatles money, damn it. Yes. So, I mean, this, this must have been quite startling uh, for, for, for Reichenberg. You know, he's a, he's a London merchant banker he's, uh, and, and suddenly he's confronted with Klein. Now, he, he, he writes about this afterwards and, uh, uh, you know, he, he appears much more sanguine about this and much more uh, calm, I imagine, than when actually faced. But he said, I didn't know who Alan Klein was. For all I knew, he might have been a nasty little gangster. I only agreed to see him because Clive asked me to see him for Lennon's sake. He said, you're very smart to have jumped in first and bought names. But what you didn't know was that Epstein's owed the Beatles huge sums of money from roadshows. Did I tell him to get lost on that first occasion? No, I put it in slightly stronger terms. Our deal with NEMS was well secured with all kinds of warranties and guarantees, so I didn't see any point in continuing the discussion. So it's New York gangster street fighting accountant meets sophisticated merchant banker who is ice cool. And that's the clash. I'm assuming this, uh, you know... Um, I hate to conjure the spectre of somebody like William Rees Mogg, but anybody who's familiar with uh, this current UK politician who's an investment banker who sort of really is quite happy to tell people that I don't really care what you think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, bye bye now. See you later. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't really care about Alan Klein. Um, so, you know, Alan Klein, uh, you know, he loves a good lawsuit or a bit of rancor. 24 hours later, he, you know, decides we need to sort this out and uh, gets the Beatles involved in signing a letter to send to EMI to say, um, hey, don't pay them the money, pay us the money directly. Uh, we're the Beatles, that's what you need to do. And EMI kind of say, well, you know, what should we do? Who do we send this money well, to? Maybe we should just send it to nobody. <laughs> just, just Absolutely, just send it to nobody. Uh, no, the, the key thing here is all four of the Beatles sign this letter. They do, so they it's, do. Paul, Paul, Paul is on board. EMI, as you say, don't know how to react. And they just say, right, well, we're not going to send the money anywhere we're, until you... So you need to kind of just go and sort this out. Then it goes to court. The money is just frozen. That's what the court. That's what the court decides. So the EMI are kind of stuck between, um, you know, the Beatles, who are the people who are actually making the money, and the NEMS, who are the people who are claiming that they have the right to organise the money. And so EMI say we'll just put it into a frozen account, and this needs to be sorted out from a legal point of view. Um, you know, we love a good legal uh, breakdown of things here on Nothing Is Real, but yeah. um, that's kind and of what happens. That is, and, and, and Reichenberg talks about going to see uh, Sir Joseph uh, at EMI, and he said uh, uh, he was being advised by Len Wood and several panicky lawyers, all scared out of their wits that the Beatles might not sing anymore or might just sing the national anthem backwards if EMI paid the royalties to Nems and not to Apple. Um, so they, they just, I phoned Lockwood, called him a chicken for backing down, declined, but he'd done it anyway. And then we enter that period where the lawyers earn their money, the writs are issued, everything is, is running. And uh, on the 1st of April, perhaps fittingly, it gets to court. But in the interim, mm. what's, hap- what's happening in March? Uh, Paul and Linda get married. George and Patty get busted. John and Yoko get married in Gibraltar near Spain. Near Spain yep. uh, this, is the, this is the, you know, are the Beatles together? Are they not together? What, what, what's going on here? Ringo gives an interview saying, I don't miss being a Beatle anymore. 
Uh, John is still saying the Beatles will give several shows this year. George, this is my favourite quote, we can see each other quite clearly and by allowing each other to be each other, we can become the Beatles again. And uh, the uh, the fourth Beatle, uh, Sid Bernstein, is saying, I'll give you $4 million for four shows <laughs> in the United States. And then importantly, on the 28th of March, Dick James and Charles Silver agree to sell their shares in Northern Songs to Lou Grade. Mm. Uh, so that's all happening in the background while this litigation is, is about to come to court. And if you, we, we have episodes, you know, the Ballad of the Ballad of John and Yoko episodes that we have kind of map out, you know, how John and Yoko are living the life of the Ballad of John and Yoko at this point. So having had a very intensive period at the end of January and the start of February, where all four Beatles and lawyers and everything are all locked in a room, they've kind of taken a back seat to some of this stuff. And it's, it's giving it's given time to, to, to play out. Um, and as you say, this kind of comes to the courts uh, quite quickly in April 1969. And there's a couple of efforts in the court proceedings to point out what a rascal Alan Klein is, you know, that, um, you know, the, 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 some, the counsel for Triumph say that uh, Apple have fallen under the influence of Mr. Alan Klein. He seemed to have a somewhat dubious record um, you know, but that really doesn't matter in the cold light of day of the courts. No, I mean, the, the, the courts are looking at this from a purely contractual point of view and this speculation where they're saying, oh, but if EMI pay the royalties to the Beatles, they might give it to Klein and he might run off uh, abscond with the money. The court isn't just not interested uh, in, in, in this. They are basically looking at this from a legal point of view and they say, well, there is no reason not to keep that money just frozen while the contractual situation um, is resolved. Meanwhile, Reichenberg, taking a leaf out of the Alan Klein playbook, engages a a detective. Mm -hmm. And uh, he runs financial legal checks on Klein and produces, you know, they produce a report and he sends it to the Sunday Times. Mm. So you can see immediately this merchant banker is picking up the same tools as Klein uses to fight Klein. And on the 13th of April, there's a, there's an article in the in in the Sunday Times published called The Toughest Wheeler Dealer in the Pop Jungle. Yeah. Um, and that Sunday Times article says, Alan Klein's business practices are a startling blend of bluff, sheer determination and financial agility, together with an instinct for publicity and the ability to lie like a trooper. He is a veteran of some 40 lawsuits and dealings in one of his shares was halted by the American Stock Exchange. In one of his better known achievements, he himself took over one of his own companies and saw the value of the stock go up by 15 million. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good, kind of good. Alan Klein being played at his own game. It's a good trick if you can do it. Can we take? Could I take? Could I take over? Nothing is real, and our stock price. I don't know. I, th- I think if we signed up for Acast Plus, we could uh, pay ourselves money. Does that make sense? Yeah, <laughs> something. We, we 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 need to get uh, Alan Klein in. Um, so he, he Alan Klein sues the Sunday Times. Yeah, uh, but successfully, uh, I, I would say they 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 um, apologise. What it does do is it convinces uh, Klein that Reichenberg is an opponent to be to be reckoned with. Mm. And Lee Eastman meets with Reichenberg to see if there's any way of getting Nems back into the Beatles as well. But that um, that doesn't really happen. And, and Reichenberg does say, I knew they were hostile to strangers owning a piece of them, but I made it very clear to Clive Epstein 
that they got a very good offer for their uh, shares and I thought the boys were okay and the Klein was no good. Um, but they're not really direct contacting Reichenberg directly. And you kind of have to ask if the money is frozen at this point, that's obviously making cash flow issues even worse. Yes, I think that's the leverage for the compromise that's brokered. So neither side is, is faring particularly well. Mm. Uh, you know, the uh, Reichenberg's investment trust has bought this to secure income. So by the 24th of April, a compromise is is hammered out. So essentially, NEMS gives up its claim to uh, 25% of the Beatles royalties for the next nine years. Instead of that, they get £750,000 in cash. They mm-hmm. get 25% of the royalties, which EMI has, has frozen. They receive £50,000 for NEMS' 23% in the film in, in the film company, the Beatles film company, Suba Films, and they receive 5% of the gross record royalties from 1972 to 1976. So they've secured a source of income. Now, yeah. that, that, seems, that seems quite low, 5%, but it's 5% of the gross. Yeah, the gross. But also, Reichenberg knows that the next thing Klein is going to try and do is negotiate uh, an increased uh, royalty rate. And in the context of what we'll come on to in parts eight and nine of the (laughs) Klein episode, uh, the Beatles receive an option on the 4.5% of Northern Song shares that are owned by NEMS. Yeah. Plus plus they get 266,000 shares in Triumph in exchange for the Beatles, 10% in them. So there's like a share swap. So everybody, everybody's happy, or at least everybody's not as happy as they want it to be, but that's the sign of a good deal. It's, it's, it's very curious because at the start of this deal, you have John Eastman saying, we're going to buy this for a million pounds and EMI are going to give us the million pounds and we'll earn it back through record sales. And Klein, who's supposed to be the saviour, has ended up, bringing this through the courts and there's a cost involved in that which isn't built into these costs of legal fees and lawyers and all the rest um you know they 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 pay triumph slash names you know 750 grand plus you know 300 grand is taken from the the royalties that are frozen and then there's another 50 grand for the super film so that's 1.1 million that they're already down that they're not that they have to that has to be paid for this that they're not getting from emi um granted that frees up the other 75% of the royalties, which rough calculation is, uh, you know, about 900,000. So the bit of the royalties that returns to them, they're essentially flipping back over to to, to triumph to, to pay off all these bills. Um, it's kind of a, a perfect money go round. And they're going to lose, as you say, 5% of gross Beatle royalties going from 72 to 76, which is going to be a not inconsiderable sum of money. But less than the twenty five percent they would otherwise have been paying. Less less than the twenty five percent they would have given away, but cumulatively, uh, and, uh, cumulatively uh, versus the million that John Eastman wanted to spend. Oh um, yes, yes, yes. It, it's not a good deal. It's it's not a good deal. It is not a good deal. But the question is, why did the deal fall off the table? The deal fell off the table because of the letter that was written saying we're going to quite question the propriety of these original negotiations. And that's what sent Clive running into back into the arms of uh, Triumph. Mm. And, uh, you know, ag- again, that 
seems to me to be an absolutely central issue is that letter. And th- there's a little last minute wrinkle in this deal, which is also quite telling. Mm. So every, everything is done. Klein has got Paul's signature and all the agreements. But then he gets a word from the Eastmans saying that they had been instructed to withdraw Paul's authorization to exchange the documents with Triumph until Klein and Abco agree not to take any fee for this negotiation. Klein storms across to the EMI studios at Abbey Road and gets hold of Paul, says what has happened. Now, again, could you imagine mm. Epstein doing this? No. Nope. You know, where you kind of storm across this studio. Klein says, Paul said, that's ridiculous, and left the room. And then Klein says, after a few minutes, he returned, having evidently made a phone call. And he said, it's all right. It's good now. I believe he must have instructed his solicitors to agree the exchange of documents. So is that another example of Paul just at the last minute trying to get you know, that little extra saving on a fee for Klein? Is he trying to make a point with Klein? Or is this something that the Eastmans did off their own well, head, I, guess, I, yeah. I guess Paul is trying to answer the question of, you know, are we controlled by APCO or are we kind of hiring this guy as a, you know, a separate business manager, you know? So who is Alan Kleiner, you know, where is APCO and all of this is a reasonable question to ask. It does get reported in the trade papers, cash box again, um, you know, that, uh, you know, the Beatles leave Nems in Triumph deal. I mean, it sounds like it's a triumphant deal, but that's not the point. Triumph's just no, the name of the company. Not, um, that, that's not the point. Uh, Alan Klein is quoted as saying in, in uh, an article um, in, in at the time of saying, uh, new arrangements have been made which will give the Beatles the independence they desire. And uh, they've settled their differences. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the differences were settled out of court. And it kind of goes through all those percentages that we that we mentioned uh, earlier on. Um it's uh, it's it's as 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 an audition for Alan Klein. It's not the best audition in the world. I suppose he can, you know, if you're looking at it in black and white, Nems are out of the picture, and you can say that's a good thing. And now we're going to get all our money, and we've solved that problem. And uh, you know, the deal finally gets sorted out, uh, paperwork wise, in August the twenty seventh, nineteen sixty nine. Right when they are not spending any more time together as Beatles. It's all. No. It's all. I, I, uh, uh, Klein does spin it. You know, he, he does, as you say, say, well, look, names have no further control. And he does point out, and this is a genuine uh, uh, point, the Beatles are now shareholders in Triumph. So the money that's going to Triumph, they will get a little tiny, tiny bit of that back because they are shareholders. Eastman, on the other side, John Eastman, writes a letter to each of the four Beatles saying, before memories become too short, I want to remind everybody that we could have settled the names affairs for very little Klein killed my deal by claiming all sorts of improper acts of names. But John, it was your letter that did that. Well, John does say that, you know, he does he does write to the Beatles and say, you know, we do know that names tied up 1.4 million of Beatles recording royalties, which Klein had been unable to free. He has no defences against uh, you know, NEMS retaining your royalties. Um, you know, the proposed settlement, which will cost you more than £1.5 million, was forced upon Klein, not induced by him. And these are the facts I'm more happy to give you chapter and verse. But John Eastman is um, assuming, if we've learned anything in the 21st century, Steve, and it's that facts can't compete with emotions. <laughs> no, no. Um, but again, it it's 
it seemed to me to be unprofessional to be writing as a lawyer to your client in those terms. Mm. And it does seem to me repeatedly, this is just another example of a personal battle mm. between, the, there's, there's just that antipathy between the Eastmans and client. And obviously by this stage, they're, they're in-laws, they're, they're, they're in the family. Well, that is the thing you that know? has changed. They are now relations of Paul and John Eastman yeah, says, you know, Klein was the fly in the ointment. I didn't like the man's reputation. I didn't like the way he operated. It isn't my style. But Lennon liked him and he talked the others into liking him. True, I wanted Nems to assume the complete liability for taxes, but that wasn't important. Klein showed up in the meantime and said, forget it. I'll get you Nems for nothing because the Epstein's owe you money. And it was because of Klein that that deal fell through and Paul kind of reinforces this and I suppose of course he would um, you know was um, part of my reason for not wishing to have Klein as manager was based on what he failed to do between the beginning of that year 69 and May Klein told us we'll get names for nothing it's a typical example of the exaggerated way Klein expressed himself to us at the time and it was because of moments like this that I gradually became more and more determined that Klein was not the right man to be appointed manager which you know, if this was his first act in his audition uh, to prove himself to the Beatles, um, Paul sees that he has failed the audition. The others have probably seen that he has passed the audition. And Paul might feel he has failed the audition because his in-laws are constantly bending his ears to say these are the actual facts of the issue. And I think Paul is dealing in facts, and I think they are reasonable facts to say this could have been wrapped up for a million quid in January with EMI back paying it, and we'd, we'd just be none the wiser. But... Um, here we are and it's cost us more money and it's things have become more convoluted. But Klein seems to think that it gives him licence three months down the line that the paperwork is drawn up and he wants to have it in writing with four signatures that he is the managing director of Apple Corps. And this leads to, you know, what's kind of euphemistically called the Liberty Bell, the crack in the Liberty Bell uh, event where Klein wants everyone to get this signed and it's it's funny how personal this gets because normally this kind of thing you know might be some kind of legal underling who might forward some contracts can you just sign all of this stuff and we'll all be done klein is really he he, he almost needs to see these signatures happen in person and again that the the issue is paul getting paul's signature on the line yes because it's this this is the stage at which uh, the Northern Songs issue has come mm. into play. So while while we're wrapping up the Triumph deal, Northern Songs has come onto the table. So Klein has been working for six months effectively by this stage with no contract. And this needs to be resolved. This needs to be resolved before Klein can go in and negotiate in, in the context of Northern Songs because he has seen what has happened in... Mm-hmm the NEMS negotiation where people are working without contracts, people, the terms of the retainer, the terms of what each individual person is tasked with doing and what the the limit of their responsibility is, is absolutely crucial. And at at this stage, we have at least two or three teams of people all working and crossing into each other's areas. So, yeah, this is the the, the next thing we come on to is Northern Songs and the need to to formalise the contractual situation. So it's Friday the 9th of May. Three Beatles have signed the contract with Alan Klein, but it takes four Beatles to make it stand up in court. And the one Beatle who's outstanding is Paul McCartney. And Alan Klein isn't having any of it. And Paul McCartney isn't having any of it. But that's where we're going to press pause on the uh, never-ending story of Alan Klein and the Beatles. And we'll take up uh, the next part in, obviously, part three 
of Nothing Is Real's look at Alan Klein. We remain available in all the usual places. Uh, www.nothingisrealpod.com is the website. At Beatles Pod is the Twitter. The Nothing Is Real Facebook group, over 6,000 people chatting about the Beatles. All our other social stuff is available on the website, as is all the other bits and pieces um, related to Nothing Is Real. We have a whole range of alternate episodes over on ACAST Plus, and we want to thank all our supporters who help us keep the lights on here for all the regular episodes and the bonus episodes at Nothing Is Real ACAST Plus. You can investigate that on nothingisrealpod.com, where you get bonus episodes on uh, Paul McCartney's Birds and all sorts of strange and magical, wonderful things. Um, Beatles houses, you know, who who would have thought we could talk for three hours on where each individual Beatle has lived? But it's all over on ACAST Plus, everybody. Um, so, so go have a look and investigate that, and thanks to all our supporters so far. But for now, my name is Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.